Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we're live. It's June 2nd, 2020, 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. East Coast, 5.30 p.m. UTC. Coordinate your clocks from all around the globe. I don't know what that is, Australian Eastern Standard Time. You'll have to calculate that yourself. What time is it on the International Space Station? It, the, do they use UTC or are they Zulu? <laughs> I don't know, but they're, aren't they moving pretty fast through the time zones? I meant it's, yeah. it's hard to coordinate. Yeah. That was very cool, that launch. Wow, that was inspirational stuff. That boat was autonomous? That was crazy. Yeah, My the drone. fuck, man. I, you know, all the Elon hating, you got to tip your cap to that, even if. Even if you're like, oh, the science is BS, he had to orchestrate all that stuff, right? I mean, that's like saying, like, oh, you can't play all the instruments. Well, dude had the vision to bring all that together and put it together. That's not everyone can do that, even if you think he's a complete fraud. You got to at least say that's a hell of a fraud because he put a spaceship into space with two people in it. Yeah, personally. Well, not like personally, personally, <laughs> personally. Yeah, that was amazing. That was inspirational. When that blasted off, I was like, whoa, what a ride. Maybe it is worth being an astronaut. I'll tell you what, before we uh, start, I'd like to give myself a shout out for never buying Dollar General and uh, for getting out of Restoration Hardware. That's been fun. <laughs> Fuck me. We've got an awesome lineup of people from all over the world here. Israel, North Carolina, Chesterfield, Chicago, Mexico, Perth, Toronto, Nashville, Tennessee. How are you doing? Jake's going to do the intro today. You want to take it away? Yeah. Welcome, everyone, to Value After Hours with your host, Toby Carlisle, Bill Brewster, and Jake Taylor. Toby, what are you going to be talking about today? Yeah, I was Going to talk about the uh, the brief little run from value that started April 2nd, but it's a little bit uh, boring. I'm going to talk about that too, but I want to talk about just very briefly mastery, um, hero dreams of sushi style mastery. William? I am going to take us to aerospace world. I was going to talk Twitter, but maybe that'll be next week. And I'm going to have another vegetable serving of on being the right size. And, and we will be back right after this. Six <laughs> inches. Who wants to take anyway. it away? <laughs> Great. Yeah, good start. Um, Toby, why don't, why don't you start it this week? Let's do it. Uh, I thought you were going to let me gather my thoughts. Well, I was inspired a little bit by... Uh, Anthony Jeselnik, uh, when he appeared on Joe Rogan, it's one of my favorite style of Rogan episodes where he talks to a comedian, just because it's so foreign to value investing. And uh, I love when they talk about their process, about having to develop material over an extremely long, like two or three years, to two years to get it to the point where you can then refine it and then deliver it and get it tight over another year and then deliver a special dump the lot start again kind of an extraordinary way of uh of generating new material living your life and i everybody's seen hero dreams of sushi by this stage so that's kind of a just a totally different again from uh comedy uh where just by going through mechanically doing the same process over and over and over again uh, in a very small scale, Hero has developed this uh, one of the finest restaurants in the world. Uh, three Michelin chefs hats, three Michelin stars. I stars. I don't know. Who gives out the chefs hats? Why do a bunch uh, of brothers from a tire company get to decide what's good food? That's a better question. Because they they travel around, I guess. They're, they're, Chef Boyardee, I don't know. They're on the road. Legit rating. I mean, it like 
they rarely go somewhere that they mention that's bad, but it's a nice way to spin being rich into business. It's, it's a little bit self-fulfilling too, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I think about that in terms of investing. What does it take to master investing? I, I don't know if you ever actually master it. I mean, Buffett is a, is a you know, phenomenal intellect, phenomenal memory, <laughs> learnt from the master. <laughs> what, I missed it, what'd you say? I said it has been. Yeah. He didn't buy the dip, dude. He did not. And uh, has spent his entire life doing it. Investing is one of the really the only endeavors, one of the few endeavors anyway, where you just keep on getting better. Like chess, the best chess players in the world top out at 35, you mechanically, or your your ability to calculate peaks at about 35. And then, you know, experience can keep you in there for about another five years. And by the time you're 40, you're too old to compete at the top level. So chess, you know, maybe poker, you can keep on getting better, but then poker evolves so rapidly. You know, it was uh, the kids came through who'd played a million hands online, which was the same number of hands that some seventy-two-year-old guy would have played yeah, if you'd just been right. sitting at a yeah. If you'd been, and so they developed this incredibly aggressive, loose way of playing, which maximised returns. So investing is really one of the only places where you just keep on accumulating knowledge and sharpening your skills and getting better. But it's complicated by the fact that the market moves in these very long cycles. Whatever you learned up to the uh, 1999 didn't serve you very well from 2000 to, say, 2009. And then what you learned in that decade didn't work very well in the last decade. And who knows what's going to work next? Maybe being are you, a... Uh, are you calling out Robinhood traders right now with this? I, well, I think they get a little bit too much... Uh, Flack. I think, yeah, I think they get a little bit too much disrespect. I don't really know. It's hard to say. Like, everybody... They're not very big accounts. They they trade too much. But when you look at the stuff that like they are dip buyers at least, and, and if you're a dip buyer, you're either a bag holder or a value investor. And at the moment, that they're both the same thing. So I can't be I can't be too critical of those guys. But I'm interested in mastering investing, you know, getting it getting it right. And I keep on reading and learning. Uh, you know, not too much. I'm sure there are people out there who say, well, you should have evolved into a compounder by now. Uh, That's but, a fair you know, argument. <laughs> I get a, I get a, I get a point of view. So I, I think that I think that uh, this valuations are stretched on that side, and I think that some evidence for that is the fact that I've been calling a bottom in value for a long time. We have had a couple of months of running now. It's June second. Uh, June second started about April second. I think we've had a pretty good run for two months. Last year we had one that ran from about. August 27 through to about December 17, not to be too precise. I can't tell you the hour of the trading day that it started and finished, but that's that's about the outperformance. So that was about four months. So we need this one to go on for a little bit longer than that. Got a lot of ground to catch up for value. Yeah, what happened in March? This year? Or from January. This year? Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm, just I'm a little salty here. My, my retirement account, who I treat like the account I hate, is was like pretty much long energies and financials for the year because of a tax advantage dividend strategy. Yay. And it has just gotten hammered. So any reprieve that I find over the last couple of days or months or whatever is nothing compared to the drawdown it took. Is that is that more of a like a deeper value portfolio? Or are you just like slinging it around doing whatever you feel like? Uh, I, I don't treat that like I treat the account that I would run, like that I care about and that I would run for people. This so is where you get I, your gamble out. a little out. more speculative with it. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, I, it's a, gr like, a grudge F account. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And like, you know, when energy got beat up earlier, I was early on that. And then, you know, all this happened and <sighs> can I, can we just talk real quick? Cause I got to give our boy Jimmy chill a shout out. His recommendations last night. Check that. First of all, they might work. If you're a compounder bro and you know more about this space than me, fine, whatever. Okta, Zscaler, Zoom, Proofpoint, CrowdStrike, DraftKings, DocuSign, Amazon, Facebook. That's the Jimmy Chill. Buy, buy them now. Did he pick that March 23? What? No, dude. He was pitching that yesterday. That was, a, that was a good March 23 portfolio. Direct quote on DraftKings, is the online betting company really worth $13 billion? The question's irrelevant to this set of buyers who take the stock up every day there's an opening somewhere. The and people uh, want to know why I watch that guy. It's amazing. 
is he like the recommendations? Is he saying just hold this until the next time I'm on, and the next time he's on is tomorrow night, so he can you can get out of it then? I don't know. I was uh, I was a little wired. I had a school board meeting last night, and uh, you know it ends, and I quit, can't go to bed, so I had a couple beers, and I watched <laughs> Jimmy Chill pitch this. I almost fell out of my chair. I don't know how sophisticated his audience is. I do know you better know what the heck you're doing if you're buying those. That's, that's Momo. abusive. Uh, valuation doesn't matter, huh? Okay. Well, the the thought tra- it was triggered when Toby was talking about the young poker players uh, playing fast and loose. And I was like, oh, man. Jimmy Chill was fast and loose last night. I've really heard that I've never heard more people say valuation doesn't matter. So Chamath uh, says valuation doesn't matter. There are lots of guys out there like valuation doesn't matter anymore. I don't know if valuation matters or not, but I kind of think that if a lot of people start saying that, I really want to go back and make sure that my valuations are tight before I... I'm I'm not abandoning valuation right now. They're playing a different game. What, they're trying to make money? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but that's... That's the thing. It's a You're promotion. trying to be right in principle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Theory. I'm trying to be right in theory. Yeah, but it's uh, it's a um, I mean, what is what is space exploration worth? It's worth whatever story you can spin. So like, you can't. Uh, I mean, fine. You want to build me a DCF? That's cool. I had a DCF on airlines that was great until it got exploded. I mean, the the, the amount of speculative nature in many of the things that something like Chamath is looking at. I mean, yeah, of course, valuation doesn't matter. It's can you create more hype? Very interesting that, like, if I was to, like, why did that Virgin Galactic go up after the space launch? Like, so imagine that you own a gas station and you're thinking about building that gas station there. And across the street, they open up a gas station and it's like going gangbusters. Would you think then that your gas station is worth more because of that? Like, the competition just proved that they could do something pretty amazing that's good for you now but maybe i don't follow the logic there. maybe what they've proved oh. is that there's a market for gas stations there's a market yeah. for gas in your in your area aggregate flows into gas stations i could see that okay. but it's it's a different game it's just a different game which is fine i just think that sometimes what they're doing is that they think well a lot of people will have watched the launch and now they're going to think that this is a hot space so now i'm going to go and what, what else Front is in there all these people yeah, I'm going to front run everybody else, and everybody else is thinking that too. I mean, I've seen people saying I'm going to go and buy Zoom Info because uh, people are going to confuse that for Zoom because they already did that with Z O O M ticker for ZM yeah. when they meant ZM. Which I That's actually own. I almost own Z O O M for a while because they were licensing their technology to Motorola to make uh, modems. Not exactly the video conference. I mean, that's the thing. Zoom, Zoom videos, a $58 billion company. Because I can go on the internet and watch a video with my friends for free. I think the like, top line's about here. $600 million. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're going to have to grow into a rosy projection. I, I find Zoom a little bit interesting because Zoom is the worst of all of the, of all of the video platforms that I use. I don't, I don't get it. There's so much competition out there. Yeah, they got distribution now in universities, so that's pretty big. Uh, we'll see. It's not a shale producer because there's not that much cash flow now. <laughs> uh, Brewster's feisty today. That's right. I'm back home out of the closet. Out of the closet. Toby, let me ask you this to kind of circle back to what you were saying about, you know, wanting to become a master. What... Uh, like, what do you have kind of built into your process to make sure that it gets a little bit better all of the time? Like, you know, because you're looking at quantitative kind of signals and like, do they translate into opportunity? Like, what is the, for you, what does that look like? Well, it's not even necessarily quantitative signals. I'm just looking at paper, new papers all the time. Like, does, no, not even just papers. Like, I, I, what's the impact of uh, a short having free cash flow over the last 12 months going into it? over the full data set, does that help it or hurt it from the perspective of the short? And so like what what is the, so does having a really heavily indebted short, is that more dangerous because now the equity stub should be much more volatile or is it less dangerous because that's a company that fundamentally is going to run into some trouble? And, and so that's the, 
some of those things, some things I don't think you can reason to from first principles. You just got to go and test them and see. But there are lots of other things that you probably can reason to from first principles and it doesn't really matter what the back test says because it should be in there. So it's a balance between the two. It's constantly evolving. I, I don't, you know, I've published a lot about the, the big muscle movements in the, in the process, but I don't talk a lot about the finer detail of it because some of it's, you know, I kid myself. That it's not proprietary. I hate that word, but it's kind of like some of it's a special source, right? I'm trying to, yeah. trying to outperform at some stage. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of traps in backtesting in that you can just run a backtest throwing anything in there and see what happens. And sometimes, like, probably a lot of the time it's going to work. And it might be the fact that you've just equal weighted your positions and you're comparing it to a, to a market capitalization weighted index. It might be underperforming because this is a time when a market capitalization weighted index is outperforming. So you got, there's a lot of ways that you can fool yourself. And as the great Richard Feynman says, uh, you've got to try to avoid that because you're the easy, easiest person to fool. So a lot of it's um, what is sensible? What does that look like in a test? What's that? It's, it's that kind of stuff. I'm sure that everybody kind of ends up at the same point, but um, just trying to get there sensibly. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to squeeze the last few percent out either. I'm just trying to, I would really rather give up some return and a back test for something that makes more sense to me on, as a value investor. Yeah. Yeah. So not like the, you know, Ren tech, which is more like they were actually probably, I think preferred the signals that made no sense right. because then they thought no one else would be looking for it. Right. And that seems to have been a good way of doing it. But I think that also they're running many many signals and devoting a little bit of the portfolio to it too which i can see that that would work remember when toby kept them off his fantasy list for uh greatest investors ever which is ridiculous well i introduced the the additional criterion that you had to pay for it and they were they were the top line so i put mine together with uh, everybody off the bottom line i think i got druck and greenblatt and yeah i think i didn't a, yeah, you left your it. you left your money on the table <laughs> That's fine. That's I spent too much. I went on margin, so I got called. <laughs> you had nothing to invest, but you had some great investors in there to run the portfolio. Right, yeah. <laughs> to I, run had to, I had to pay a lot of borrow, but boy, did I, I was going to catch up. Make it up in scale. All right, let's 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 do somebody else. Um, we've ex- extracted everything that we possibly can from that. Dead horse. I've been going to the uh, aerospace value chain uh, because it's super decimated, as many of you may know, um, all all 10 of you. Um, I had a good conversation with a buddy that works at Boeing last night. And, you know, just the amount of slack that is in that in Boeing's system right now. Right. He was telling me that. <clears throat> at some point, you know, they were talking about maybe producing 8737 maxes a month. And now, you know, they're looking at, I mean, it's almost stopped right now, but you're looking at like, I think 30 is the number that I heard is sort of the plan. Um, and, and just how that trickles through the supply chain, like spirit aerosystems, uh, delivers them, uh, they refer to it as ship sets. I think it's fuselages, fuselages and wings for the most part. Um, and like Boeing was paying Spirit or had agreed to have Spirit produce like 50 to 55 last year, even though the max was ramping down production. So there was already a, a sort of excess inventory in that system that had to be worked off. And now this. So it's like it's just been a, a pile up of issues. Um, and I don't really know. I need to get like a deck together and sort of sort through my my uh, my thoughts. Uh, it sort of fits nicely within the, the acquisition um, project that I'm doing because you've got like Transdime and Heiko or within the space. Um, but it, it's been interesting. The, the security that is pretty interesting to me or a set of securities is united bonds actually uh you get a lot of yield you're higher in the capital structure you are you know it's the oper- it's the operating entity right or the hold co rather so it's like you're not you're not secured by the airplanes 
but you also don't have the equity risk. Uh, all that they're talking about is prudent management and paying down debt. Scott Kirby's a G. That guy knows how to run a, an airline. Uh, and they got a lot of they got a lot of cash right now. They got about 250 days of cash, uh, burning 20 million a day. So obviously, by the end of the fourth quarter, but you gotta assume that they're gonna get some delay or some uh, you know traffic coming back, which these riots probably aren't helping very much. But um, I, that one's interesting to me. And then I'm I'm sort of going through all of them, but it's a uh, I have to think that there's some value somewhere in there. And like from a high level, just thinking about how valuation occurs and is built and whatever, um, you know, the, the truth of the aerospace super cycle is going to continue into perpetuity. Like that was obviously flawed right in December, but it is also not as bad as it feels today. Right. I mean, that's, that's, normalization and there's no visibility right now so the idea that people are not going to get more amped up about it over time i think is almost the probability is almost zero and that's going to reflect in the models and i you're not buying into a rosy outlook uh is sort of the the short story and i think you know if you got some some companies that can survive you got a reasonable shot at having a pretty good puff in three to five years and so you're moving up the cap stack a little bit to get the debt because it's got a fat yield rather than sitting in the equity? I'm thinking about it, yeah. Like United, I mean, you're looking at 11 to 13% yields to maturity for a couple years, uh, like out to 2022, I think is 13.3% or something. And it's, you know, it's like an equity hybrid security, right? You're not, it's not safe, but it's a whole lot safer than the equity. And you got a pretty good yield there. So... That's sort of how I'm thinking about that particular part of the value chain. But I'm I'm thinking about stuff like Hexel, the car they they make like uh, composites that are taking greater share of airplanes in general. Uh, they also sell into wind uh, mills. Like I, I I don't know enough to talk about the entities, right? But I'm trying to work through like where's the kink, and I think just from like a capital cycle theory standpoint, three to five years out this shit is going to be tight. I mean, they have like, they're firing all their labor. They're going to be lean. Uh, so if you think about, okay, how's this look in a couple years, I need to figure out where the profits are going to flow, but they're going to flow somewhere. This, I mean, the, the supply chain is not going to be stopped forever. So that's a bold take. Well, that's, I mean, you don't have to have the smartest take in the room. You just got to be right. <laughs> I mean, I hold love and uh, SBR equity. Yeah, spirit. I got spirit. Yeah. yeah, that's worked out. Okay. I mean, they are they are like decimated right now. Uh, I think their stocks off like seventy percent, right? So it's just one of those things. Like, just from a gut check, and I I know that without doing the math, I get that I'm just talking out of my ass here, but what's the probability that, that the value of a perpetual asset has changed 70% in three months? I would say almost zero. So now you get into questions like, was it valued properly before? Is it valued properly now? I don't know. What I do know is if you're trying to stack the odds in your favor, looking in areas like this seems to be a better way to stack the odds in your favor than buying whatever Jimmy Chill recommended. Does the kind of M&A component of that when you talk about Transdime or Heiko, is that like that you just think they're going to have a richer opportunity set here over the next couple of years of stuff that they can buy? Yeah, I think they I mean, I, I don't know. You get into a problem with size with both those entities, I think, right, is I, I it is easier to build through M&A on a small base than a larger base. But uh, I, I think the idea that the big don't find some people to swallow up is is hard for me to fathom because i gotta think if they're struggling like everyone is struggling when do we you know, normalize Excel, they called off a merger uh recently so you know does does that sort of restart down the road i don't know um but that's sort of what my research project is right now how, when do we normalize? How do you think about that? I don't know, man. I mean, anyone that knows is they 
lying. I mean, right now, uh, you know, so there are a lot of competing thoughts that I have. One is airlines are going to retire these older aircraft before they have heavy maintenance because they don't want to incur the cash outflow. The other side of that is United is saying, we have a young fleet. We're not going to buy new airplanes right away. So we're going to stretch out, you know, our fleet age, which is what Delta did pretty much from 09 to today. They sort of like took a, we can improve our cabins, but not our fleet. And that worked out. So I don't know how it all shakes out. I really don't. What I do, what I am confident saying is wide body will, uh, will come back slower than narrow body. So the 737 and the A320 is going to come back quicker than the dual aisle transcontinental stuff. Um, I think and, it comes back pretty quickly. And I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Like, I look at, I've sent you guys that chart on mobility and it, what that chart shows is we're basically back to baseline for walking and for driving. So the, tr- the peaks now look like the troughs his- previously and, we're pro- and that was a few weeks ago. So we're probably now getting back to baseline. Uh, public transport still basically zeroed out, but I'm not sure how much public transport is actually running. Where you fit planes in that, if it flights in that is a little bit harder, right? It's not public transport necessarily, but it's also not driving in your own car. You're not as safe as that. 9-11 equalized in about three months, normalized in about three months. I mean, even if it's not three months, that's still, we're, we're kind of a pretty adaptable species. We forget really quickly. I mean, I have 27% of my portfolios in travel-related stuff. So I have a pretty big bet that it's going to come back. Yeah, I think so too. If that doesn't come back, then I'm just wrong. But like that's I'm as confident in that as I am in anything. Like Well you priced you got the right price for the bet. Yeah, and I bought a lot of it in March when everyone was terrified. So, you know, we'll see. I mean this is this is sort of like what I have said that I would wait for forever is to have a view on something, have the world present an opportunity and swing. So I fucking did it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Like but you know, that's what I did. Can you hedge that travel bet with a the, the Jimmy Chill portfolio? No, I'm not messing with Jimmy Chill's portfolio. Bible portfolio. <laughs> Zoom on one end, <laughs> Spirit on the other. Holy Splunk. That's the only one that makes it in. <laughs> Did he recommend Splunk? What? No, Jimmy Chill would never recommend Splunk. It's got problems. The problem is people aren't buying it fast enough. Hey, yeah, it's a lot of growth on, in it. Growth's not the issue. So I don't know, but I, I that's that's what I'm I'm doing right now, and I think it's uh it's interesting, it's interesting to think of all the slack that has been introduced to a system that was predicated upon tightness, and how does that come back, and where does that I mean it's bound to create some sort of seat shortage eventually, or some sort of inflation somewhere. Uh, it's a lot of research I got to do, but it should be it should be fun and it's interesting. Yeah, it's a good way to learn about a new industry. If anyone has suggestions, I don't have answers, so let me know. What's a good way to learn about a new industry? Losing some money in it. <laughs> a little tuition. I'm right there well, with you, Bill. I'm not criticizing. I'm just asking questions for my own purposes. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, obviously, I don't own any of the stuff that like I'm looking at now. Um, but I do. I mean. I've got a pretty strong view on the airline industry and what I think is going to happen and why I liked it. So then it's a matter of just sort of working back and seeing are any of these suppliers to it actually worth a bet or not. But they are, I mean, they are decimated. And, you know, Hexel was a compounder before this. And now what? It's like a company you can't own. Get out of here. I think Chris Bloomstrand said he held it and might have sold it. Yeah, he had, we had chatted on Twitter real quick. Um, I mean, there there may be reasons not to own it, but that's just one, right? I mean... You know, my buddy from Boeing says we cannot manufacture the 737 without Spirit Aero systems. Okay, so maybe that's a clue that it's a business that's got some value. So what's the value? I don't know, but uh, I like to search in in headline risk. Me too. Filled up a portfolio with it. <laughs> just, just called value. Yeah. Well, I got AGO. AGO is for is for for people who like living life right on the end of the wedge. It's a it's a, a MB, MB, 
MBS rapper. And every time there's some bad news with some council somewhere failing, they're right along there with them, AGO, underwriting the debt. But still, Compounder, look at the adjusted book value has been compounding really quickly. It's, a, it's an interesting position. And it's cheap, So, but I've held it for a while. I know it pretty well. Compounders are just stock price, man. It's not the underlying business. Yeah, you must be mistaken. I, I've, I've learned that. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I'm glad that we... Also, did you know that growth and value are tied at the hip? I've heard. I've recently been told. I haven't seen a drawing of it yet, but okay, I just wanted to. I want to see I how it works. An old conversation we had, and I just wanted to come back with that. Ugh. Growth is just expensive stuff, right? I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know it's joined to value somehow. That's all I know. I'm just reciting Buffettisms. It's cheap on a 2050. Yeah. Earnings. Yeah, it's going to grow into its valuation. Valuation doesn't matter anymore, anyway. Not when you discount at negative rates. Yeah, well, that's a good point. That that is the one kind of thing that I can't figure out either. Like if if maybe FanMag is the place to be if we go negative. Yeah, I I mean, look, I think it's I like those businesses in general. Though Facebook's found themselves in a world of shit with their employees. Uh, turns out that it's not an easy dynamic to manage. And maybe maybe I'm over exaggerating, but it does seem like if you're uh, part of your advantage is human capital, uh, this is a delicate time. As is Twitter's. Yeah, at least you have a lot of cash to sort of figure it out with your Facebook. Yeah. And they print it every day, which is nice. <laughs> if you can get that. Yeah. <laughs> with no cost of goods sold well I guess they got storage and stuff but at least you got all the people that are all mad creating your content it's yeah. like Fox News without the personalities pretty good pretty good combo when you don't have to pay your talent <laughs> uh, Jake do you want all to right. take it away veggies yes it's veggie time alright so we're going to be talking about a an article, or I guess an essay, you would call it, from 1926 that's called On Being the Right Size. And it's written by a geneticist whose name is J.B.S. Haldane. And he was sort of a, a science popularizer of his day, kind of like, a, you know, a Richard Dawkins or a Stephen Jay Gould. Um, so in this article, he's talking about how every type of animal has the right size that it's supposed to that it becomes and it's really it comes down to math is the reason why so the first thing to imagine that he he asked us to imagine is uh, uh, take a normal man and turn him into a giant so he's 10 times as tall 10 times as wide and you know 10 times as thick and he's got uh, that would then make him a thousand times the normal weight of a man right however uh which would be probably around 80 tons or so if you took a cross section of his leg and looked at his femur, his femur would only be a hundred times the size of a normal man's. So he has basically that bone would have to be 10 X the strength of a normal man's. Otherwise it's likely to break. So every square inch of, of, of giant bone has to be that much stronger because the mass is growing at a faster rate, uh, than what the, the cross section of the surface area of the bone. So, and it just so happens that the human thigh bone does break under about 10x the normal human body weight. So, it's likely that a giant, if it had a similar bone strength, would break its leg on every single step that it took. So, hmm. so you can imagine, like, for the giant. Well, maybe this is like, you know, why Yao Ming's career was so short, right? Like, this is a pretty good argument for why he would have foot trouble. Um, now, let's imagine gravity for a second if you take a mouse and drop it down a thousand foot uh mine shaft and it lands on a reasonably soft surface it, it will be dazed but it will live uh haldane tells us that a rat when dropped that same will die a man will be broken and a horse splashes this is what he says <laughs> pretty uh it's a little hmm. gross but it, what it has to do with is the weight to surface area ratio of a falling body. So 
if you imagine that, you know, this is why a parachute works is because it greatly increases your surface area that the air has to move around while not adding as much weight. Um, so insects, when they are, this is why insects can crawl on a on the ceiling because their their gravity doesn't hardly affect them at all. Um, but where where insects are instead, where they get afraid is actually around water. So when you if you got out of the bathtub, there, due to the surface tension of water, you have about a 150th inch layer of water on your body as you get out, which weighs about a pound. So we don't notice it because, you know, one pound evenly distributed over your body doesn't really register. But if you're a mouse and you're getting out of water, it's about your entire body weight. A wet mouse needs to be able to carry its whole body weight out. Now, if you're, an, if you're a fly that lands in the water, it's many times your body weight that you have to be able to fly to get out. So that's why you see like, in, that, like stuck a fly in the trap. water. They get stuck in the water. So this is why Shut most up. insects have a, they call it a, a proboscis, I think it's called, which is basically like a tube that sticks out of their, to be able to drink water so they don't get too close to the edge and fall in, right? So I was trying to think about like, what does that do for a business? Like what's the business context of like, what's the, what's the weight of water? And maybe it, it has to do with like regulation and compliance and, um, you know, if you are a little insect in the business world and you have to try to get your own body weight out and you have this like compliance, it's weighing on you, you can end up drowning in it. Whereas if you're a really big company, you don't even notice the compliance problems, right? Like if you're, if you're JP Morgan, you know, you have an entire team of compliance officers who can take care of this stuff. Uh, so you could see like, you know, size, when it comes to size, you know, compliance kind of things matter. Um, the next thing, I don't know, you guys have any comments on that before I jump to the next part? No, I like it so far. Oh, Bill, you're on. You're muted out. Oh, my bad. How do you how do you own Berkshire when you're talking about size? This is this is the whole argument against them, right? But is it a benefit? We're not clear that it's a benefit or a, or a negative yet, are we? Berkshire can yeah, get out of the water and it doesn't even notice the, the water clinging to it, but it can't cling to the ceiling. Yeah, or maybe it's too big to do anything, uh, you know, that it's toast if it falls down the well. Could have been doing. All right, we've got more. We'll cover some more ground and then we can come back to Berkshire, okay? Okay. All right. Now, imagine a worm that has a smooth skin and a, a straight alimentary canal, like basically the food that comes through. And it now take that worm and make it 10 times as big. Well, what ends up happening is that you would need to have a thousand times as much food and oxygen. So the worm absorbs oxygen through its skin, right? And, and it absorbs nutrients through its alimentary canal. You wouldn't have to have a thousand times as much food and oxygen available for this worm to support a 10 X in its size. Uh, because the, the surface area of those of inside the worm and the outside of the worm only grows at a hundred times, whereas the mass grows at a thousand times. So now what, what, how evolution has got around that has been to create more complex uh, shapes. So like our human lungs are incredibly folded up and dense and they have incredible surface area. It's actually about a thousand or about a hundred square yards, which is about half of a tennis court your lungs have that much surface area inside of them, right? So that's how we're able to draw so much oxygen out of the, out of the, the, out of the atmosphere. Now, think about insects. They breathe through their skin through these little holes. They don't have lungs. They don't actively pump oxygen through their body. It's just about the, the sheer diffusion of molecules like bumping into each other that move around. In, and so what ends up happening is that any insect that is if they're, the hole is with, uh, more than a quarter of an inch away from the air, it won't diffuse enough, and that will be then an oxygen-depleted area of an insect. So that's why they don't get to be bigger than they are, is because they don't have a way to pump oxygen throughout their body. Okay. And thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe thank God. So let's let's bring this back to the business world and think about oxygen as sort of information and information processing. So every business is, you know, takes all of these inputs, energy, information, uh, you know, human talent, capital, 
and they they arrange it in some kind of miraculous way that is able to fight entropy enough and then the output of it is that we have delighted customers like they're doing things for people that they want to get done well if you think about the information processing as like the oxygen you can imagine that you know the 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 customer interaction and the information from that has to be able to diffuse throughout the entire organization otherwise this is like the the insect that gets too big and it can't it can't get oxygen and or information about what's making the customer happy deep enough into the organ organism to be able to like have it process the information process uh, correctly so when we think about that, like, you know, imagine like a, a restaurant owner, the guy owns the restaurant, he sees every customer, like he can see the smile on their faces or when they're pissed about something, like he's got the direct feedback. He's almost like an insect in that the information is like right there, but it can't get above a certain size because otherwise it breaks down. Well, you know, let's think about like, what is, what does work from home mean for this? If we're trying to process information, you know, think about a, a, a a business as an information processing organism. Well, you know, there's this famous 7% rule study that, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit problematic in that, like there's been replication problems with it, but just, just as a thought experiment, 7% of communication is the words that you're saying. Uh, 38% is the tone and the other 55% is body language. Now, I don't know about you, but like on a Zoom call, okay, we have the words, we have the tone. I don't know how much of the body language comes through in in a Zoom call. So Andrew Wilkinson had an interesting tweet where he said it's like talking to someone on the spectrum because you're kind of looking at them, but they're not quite looking at you. They're looking in a funny place. Yeah. He said this he, is he why the putting... people that are saying that there's going to be like permanent changes to business travel have never done sales. But also, it's like, it's like but, a bunch of spreadsheet nerds. It's a, like, but it's oh, a cost-benefit analysis, right? If you're selling something yeah. hugely expensive, you're still going to send the dude out. But if you're sending, selling, like, there's the the, the point at which you can sell something uh, cheaper or, or more expensive is, is 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 marginally higher. I don't know, man. One of the best salespeople that I ever encountered was a paint guy, and he used to have this move where he would hand you the the clipboard and the way that he would hand the clipboard, the pen would roll down the clipboard and hit your hand first. So like you automatically had a pen. He closed so many sales. You can't do that on Zoom. But equally, you can't you can't uh, replicate that over lots of different sales guys, right? It's something that was a trick that he yeah, maybe I think can. Sales is a personal game, man. I think big sales, small sales, all sales. But then there are companies. So this is when I, when Jake was talking before, I was thinking this is the huge advantage that companies like Microsoft, Facebook, FanMag have. Like they have this. Everybody who tunes in gets the same screen, and the, there's a small group of people can optimize that relationship. Doesn't work for everything, but that you do have a huge advantage where you can control each and every customer uh, interaction and, and get it to where you want it to be. Yeah, yeah, I think there's something to that actually uh, on the quality of the data. So if if you imagine like that, using data to make customers happier. If you have some kind of advantage in the data, it's almost like you're breathing an oxygen, you know, enriched air relative to your competitors. You uh, sort so maybe, of just laid out the bull case for Disney. Well, maybe. I mean, you I think mean, yes, about that's it. The Netflix, data from Disney, you know, Plus the recommendation engine, maybe. Um, you know, Google with the search and the fact that like they see where you click once you, once you sort of try to answer the question that you just asked Google and they see if it like worked or not and they can get that feedback loop and then present it to the next person. Uh, yeah, I mean, there maybe is an argument for winner take all because of that, uh, that maybe the, the, the richness of the data allows you to delight the customer in a way that your competitors couldn't. Do you think that, do you oh. think that Netflix is getting there with that? Is Netflix doing that? I mean, I don't know. Their recommendation engine is supposed to be you know, super sophisticated. I'm not sure how it's, I've never been. Well, that it's missing me. It doesn't know result. me. <laughs> it's just the bundle. It's just the direct bundle. So like the bundle has a bunch of stuff that you don't like in it either. It's just, it's got to get you the one thing that you do like. 
you White know, Tiger King, which everyone likes. I didn't, you're like not a human. I didn't oh, like it. Oh God! Can't watch, watch it. it. Probably because it reminded you of your your hometown in well, there's, Australia. There's sir. something to that. That's that's not entirely <laughs> wrong. But the the uh, the original conception of Netflix, I thought, was going to be have this very long tail of movies that you know if, if there's so you could. So, you know, there are lots of little cult films that there are small groups of people want to watch lots and lots of times. And so they were going to capture that. And then it changed to, oh, we're going to get better data and we're going to make better movies and TV for people to watch, which I think is much, much more difficult. And if I go on YouTube, uh, yeah, YouTube movies now, if you go on there, they have that long tail. Like, if you want to see Predator, it's on YouTube. If you want to see any of those banging action movies from the 80s, Predator stands up really well. The original one, don't mess with anything else. Or you can watch the second one in LA, that's great too, but everything else has been terrible. Yeah. You can, you can find that long tail on YouTube. Maybe YouTube wins that battle. This is the Disney argument, man. Evergreen content, franchises you can roll out and out and out, data on what people are watching, how do you reinvest in the parks, what experiences do they want, 100%. And well, content me... that pays for itself. As so I'm as I'm wanting to do, there. let me throw a wet blanket on this a little bit. And they got 55 million direct to consumer customers. I got one less now. I canceled it over the weekend. Oh, you hate her. <laughs> All I was Let's... thinking about with Jake's before you throw a wet blanket yeah. on it is I was mid caps were screaming in my head because I think that's probably the size. Uh, I mean, I've had this thought for a while, but I think mid caps are probably where you're big enough to get some scale advantages, but small enough to be personal. Mm, interesting. Uh, let's talk about base rates a little bit. And so from 1994 to 2014, S&P 1500, what percentage of companies had a greater than 30% growth rate for more than five years? Less than 1%. Less than, I'd say 0.1%. Bill? I don't know. You have I'll to go with, I'll go with Toby's. I go point, 0.11%. <laughs> No, so it's actually 2.9%. So you have a a 1 in 34 chance. You have a 1 in 34 chance of, if you threw a dart at the S&P 1500, finding a company that had grown that consistently. Okay. How about a 20-year run? Which, what do you think that odds are? I should know this because I read this study. It's low. It's It's lower than that. It's a base rate paper, basically. It is. So it's 0.3%. You have a 1 in 330, basically, chance. So if you're a compounder uh, and you like that as an investment style, you have to a little bit ask yourself, like, what are the chances that I am God's gift to analysis enough to be able to be able to the one that I'm the one who's going to pick the 1 in 330 per, uh, base rate? Kudos to you if you are. I, I'm a little skeptical that we're all that smart. I guess the, the rebuttal to that would be you could add some other analyses to that to fu- to kind of, you know, what, what criteria do those ones that outperform? What what unites them? Let's look at the let's look at those characteristics and then you could say, and what are the consequences for sort of slightly missing there if we get such a blockbuster run out of those? I don't know the answer, but that's an interesting line of inquiry. So I, I guess my last thing I'll say is like, do you want to bet on insects or elephants in the world? And and keep in mind that 25% of the known species on the planet are beetles. So yeah, but an elephant's really smart, dude. Ant seed elephants. Just saying. <laughs> Not the other way around. And there's probably more ants by mass than any other animal on Earth, right? As if somebody knows that, but somebody's got that. That's a true fact. It'll be out there on the internet. Yeah, I know. I don't know how they can tell those kind of things, but actually, the more the the microbes outweigh us by a lot. If you count soil uh, microbes in the soil, like we're just sort of like playing a little game, but they're like the real deal for Earth. Yeah, but they don't have Netflix, so we win. They don't have Netflix. Yeah. All right, I'm done with uh, giving. I think I'd bet vegetables. on crocodiles. That's what I'd bet on. They've made it a long time. You didn't give me the chance, but that's what I would bet on. Is that mid caps? Are crocodiles mid caps? I don't know. I don't know. I, I you lost. I I pretty much don't even know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. 
<laughs> Size, scale. I, I'm at the point I where like I'm it. thinking about if I want to own an ant an or an elephant. If Meb Fable was here, he'd say the biggest company on the stock market almost invariably underperforms. And that, that more recently, that hasn't been true. But for most of the history of the stock market, you can just about fade the biggest one relative to everything else. I guess for a number of reasons, right? If you get to the to be the biggest, you've got to be very mature and you've also got to be yeah, valuations probably a little bit stretched, but that's not been true for the last little while. I think it's been Apple, been doing pretty well. There's a few others in there, Microsoft, Google, kind of duking it out for number one. Probably yeah, true well, when it was Exxon. A, a bit of a problem too, like Apple, if, you look at, if you pull up like Heiko's 10K and you look at, I think it was like 2016, they really decoupled from the composite. So, like, obviously, if you knew about Heiko in 2011 and you bought it and you believed, like, you crushed. But, you know, somebody like me that's coming in, you know, today to research it, like, I'm already paying for a lot of the stuff that's been revealed. So, you know, what's the probability that I'm the not the sucker at the table? And how long can that continue and all that stuff? So Depends on what portion of the like evaluation is growth in the run. You almost, yeah. Well, you almost certainly have that problem with the biggest stock in the stock market, right? Is it's like, who's the incremental buyer? I mean, at some point, flows do matter. Uh, so It's the other way around. At some point, fundamentals matter. Flows are the only thing that have mattered the last few years. Hit us with your questions. Yeah, yeah question time. Well, I mean, what's the, I mean you think that the, the best stock in the stock market has bad fundamentals at any time i'd i'd imagine that the fundamentals are pretty strong and you get somewhat of a how do you define best probably relative to price well, the though, biggest I like the, i would think the biggest usually at the time looking at it has some of the best fundamentals it would be odd to me to think that the biggest stock in the stock market is just some shit company the biggest stock in the stock market will be the one that looks like it has the brightest future because it's the one that gets bid the most right so and but, and the one that's probably likely to have a reversion to the mean in the fundamentals. The most popular one. Yeah, I'm just saying that I think it's probably popular because the fundamentals are pretty good at the time. I got a, I got a they question have here. Been good. Did you guys have yeah, a? They are good today. You are you are making a. Are, is it going to continue to be good? I'm saying today it's good. And that's what I'm saying is that the the mathematics of of genetics and insects and all these things would say that there are some kind of limits onto these things and that if you're just projecting outward on a straight line you know like extrapolation i have a little bit of a question mark about that that's all i guess i'm trying to say okay so we're not buying ants or elephants <laughs> that's for you to decide in your heart I, look, man, I totally agree. Like, I mean, you know, look, just look no further than aerospace. People extrapolated in December. They just got screwed. So, so I got a couple of good questions here, fellas. Let's uh, let's dive into the questions. Did anybody see, I, I posted Icon's portfolio yesterday. A lot of commentary on that. I was surprised, actually. Most of the time, those, those portfolio tweets just slipped through. But Icon's got picked up. Uh, Icon's stubbed his toe on Hertz. But I heard from a buddy over the weekend who's in uh, mortgage-backed security structuring and stuff like that. Commercial, there's this portion of... Th I'm going to mix, mess this up. Apologies to anybody who actually knows what what I'm about to try to talk about. But uh, CMBX, there was a big short. That was this this time around. The big short was in the CMBX, uh, the bottom tranche of that. And there was a fund set up to capture it. The guy had $700 million in it. Investors just ran out of patience and they had to dump the whole portfolio. Icon swooped in, picked it up, made an absolute killing when the market got destroyed. And so that's why I think he's come out and he's been prepared to like take, just say, yeah, we messed up on Hertz. And he's dusted a billion there, but he's made much more than that on the other side on Hertz. The question is, what do you think about his portfolio? It's, it, it's, it's pretty, like it's a deep value portfolio. Did you guys see it? You see what's in it? Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's a, it's like a bunch of energy That's and it. what else does he have? Like he's probably got IEP in there, and then he's got like some other quasi activist holding, right? I'd imagine. I mean, I have no idea. That IEP portfolio. This is his. Uh, the listed company IEP is the ticket. Uh, Icon Enterprises, I think. Yeah. Uh, that have a look at the have a look at the uh, the stock price on that thing. 
it's it's crushed at the moment. It's in a trough. I don't know exactly where it's trading, but have a look at the runs that that has gone on from like the late. I think it got put together in the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, it's had these two monster peaks, and it. it clearly goes on very big runs when deep value gets Holy a little crap, bit. Holy crap! Its dividend yield is sixteen percent. I mean, I guess it's an LP, but still. Is That's it an crazy. LP? Yeah. It's had some monster runs, and it's kind of looking more like it's in a trough. I don't know. what the, I haven't looked at it really closely. I just kind of looked at it because I got the question yesterday on Twitter, and so I, it, it's interesting. It's kind of worth digging into. Yeah, I find some of these like kind of a almost a close-in fun type of argument for some of these guys a little bit interesting. I mean, yeah. Greenlight. Um, yeah. Ackman's. Yeah, Ackman's. I don't. I, there might be something to that. If you could, these guys like some of the especially. Einhorn, like he's he's about as cold as you can get right now, reputation wise, right? Like everybody's bailed on him. Yeah, and you get him a discount too. At some point, he, I, th- I would still bet on him. Uh, I think, I think he's smart. So maybe yeah, you get but- a nice reversion to the mean and his results as well as like since everyone's just shit canned it. Yeah, the world can leave smart people behind. Um, Forever or momentarily? What are you saying? I mean, I think Forever. people, yeah, people can lose Forever? their knack for the world. Uh, yeah, so what's he got? CPQ, Freeport McMoran, Occidental, Chenier. I I have no idea about any of these things. I have absolutely none. Well, if it outperforms, I wouldn't be shocked. Pontificating about it. Well, it's like a bunch of commodity plays. He's gotten his ass handed to him in the Permian. Like, he's not good in energy, I think, objectively speaking. Uh, you know, Occidental, I, I don't know, was that the world or was he just wrong? I have no idea. Uh, he was there with so. Buffett too. Yeah, well, Buffett's higher in the cap stack. He's getting paid out lower in the cap stack. Yeah. That that higher in the cap stack's turning into lower in the cap, turning into common equity. It's true. It's true. Bill, uh, Bill Miller picked up FTCH. I know you were yeah. researching RH for a while. I don't know anything about it. Sorry, Farfetch. Um, it's called Farfetch, I think. It's some UK luxury brand, I think. I don't really, I don't know. I'm sorry. Sounds a little Farfetch to me. Bill Miller's a beast, man. That guy sees things before they happen. Uh, I think he is very, very underrated in the community of people to follow. Is he underrated? I think he's got. Not many pro- people talk about him, man. <laughs> yeah, I see him around sits a lot. on him because he blew up. Well, that's. That's fair, right? That's a, you get you get a little question mark if you blow up one time. Ackman's yeah. got the same thing. Deservedly so. Well, you guys just said that you know smart people have bad results sometimes, right? And the world doesn't leave them behind forever, so maybe you got a little bit risky. Einhorn hasn't blown up so much as he's just underperformed for an extended period yeah. of time. I think that's blowing up. It's not blowing up, yeah. but like no, there's a difference a between impairment. There's a difference between closing up shop on your LPs though, and yeah. leaving them holding the bag and then starting something else again. Maybe that's a different. Maybe. Did that happen to to Miller? Was he was he did he? It wasn't an. It was a mutual fund. Did he get um, pushed out, or was that? I don't know. I'm purely speculating here. I don't know. I'm, I'm asking a question, not speculating. Um, there is a difference for the record. I get that, but you underperform for that long. You're pretty close to cost. I mean, you've done a disservice to your clients. Well, what, what, like, what do you do though? You stick to what you're supposed to be doing, which is what he's done and it doesn't work. Yeah. I, th- I think, look, if I like, if I was talking to him and he gave two shits, what I had to say I mean, hasn't he been short Netflix forever? It depends on how you size it, right? Depends on how you what what you're in. Yeah, you're yeah in but the like his size. returns would suggest that it hasn't been a good trade. I mean, maybe you just don't know that entity. I mean, and sometimes it's okay to be really frustrated by something like Tesla and not put odds on it and not cost your clients money because you think you're smarter than everybody as the market rips in your face year after year after year after year eventually you're the one that's wrong and like even if you're right you're wrong because you're paying the drawdown fee the whole time like you got carry in that 
Depends on how you size that. Depends on what the function of the position is. Like if it's if it's a hedge against like clearly that stuff's going to get dinged up when we go through a drawdown. Yeah, and, but- and there's a lot of stocks that look with that have that trajectory that like there's no earnings, there's no cash flow, they're basically living on stock sales, and they're faddish and popular, and they get a big rip, and then they fall back to earth eventually. So some yeah, of them haven't right done right. that yet. Tesla is up sixty percent year to date or something. Yeah, I would say it's, it's probably more than that, isn't it? I don't, I don't know. That, it's yeah. it's up a lot. It's up a lot. Anyway, I tr- I track it. I don't I don't have a position in it anymore. I've donated some money and I've made some money and donated some money again. So I think I'm probably down on it. I mean, it's like Greenwald on Amazon. Like these guys are really smart. If they could avoid the discretionary shorts, I think that probably their returns would be much much better. I just it's a well, that's it, true of every single bull market, right? Like. 10 years on anything no short, this wasn't know. a bull market greenwald got i think he lost like 16 million dollars on amazon that's not a bull market you were wrong like i mean that's just the world okay that one but i'm saying in general any any driving with the parking brake on over the last 10 years would have been looked foolish yeah i guess i mean <laughs> after 10 years you're wrong but you can't i mean like yeah, like yeah, you how get, many careers have 10 years to go under performance? Like, it's just, it's not, yeah, fine. You can sit there and be like, well, you know, on a thousand year spectrum, this is just 10 years that are, are not good. But like part of the game is also identifying when the world is shifting. And if you're not doing it, like. The world's you know, always shifting though. The question is, is it secular or cyclical? And sometimes they look the same and that's the difficult thing. No doubt. But I think that the hard thing that, that managers have to answer for and after 10 years i think it's easy as managers to say well it's all it's all fed induced and it's all uh passive driven and all that like there's a vehicle that adapts to the world and it's the index and the index was flat from 2000 to 2010 and it had a monster drawdown a couple in the middle yeah and if that was if that was an active manager he'd have been fired she'd have been fired yeah so I don't think you can look at the thing is you have to make the decisions in real time the whole way through and if you have some sort of discipline you got to keep on applying it you can't look at the fad and change the fad recently. because the fads always look secular at the point that you're putting on the uh, the every market boom has this it's changed this time is different it looks secular and it's not yeah I think that's why people that come to this podcast pray at a value church, right? I mean, it's sort of your North Star where you say, like, I am going to buy things that I perceive to be good value. My only point is if you've underperformed for a decade, like, there's a chance you're not very good at picking good value. As there's a the fire in the, now. in the basement of this church. <laughs> well, value, you know, the, the, you can look at those value uh, deciles and that's that's got no human skill in there. That's just that's just the, what the decile has done. The decile has been that beaten up, and it depends that you can if you're in if you're a price to book style guy that started underperforming in like 2006, I think. If you're a flow guy, you've been able to hold on for a little bit longer. But Einhorn, I think, looks a lot like an EV EBITDA style investor, and he's kind of tracked EV and like that was monster run first de- first part of the decade first decade of the 2000s less good run second decade of the 2000s might be like turning the corner a little bit since april 2nd i'm calling it values back i'm not i hope it is everybody hopes uh, just but cursed us you know i think uh if you're not at least I, I don't there's just a lot of people that i think have been left behind and it's hard to argue uh that some of them haven't I don't know Einhorn, obviously. I like I don't study him. I have no idea. Maybe he's still got it. But it just seems to me that some of these guys have been so dogmatic in how they're thinking that they miss the world changing. Maybe it's a cycle. And maybe they're right. Maybe this, the world hasn't changed. No, it's not different. Every time people get left behind. That is true. Throughout life, every time that somebody can't iterate their process, they become old and society forgets about them. Well, here's one thing. Valuations have become increasingly stretched. Like if you go back from in the day that we have 1850 to today, valuations are higher. So if you've had this discipline where you're like, I'm not going to pay more than X, you've been left behind. That's that's what's happened. And so the new younger guys come in who are more prepared to pay up. Uh, they've been able to survive for a little bit, but then as they become old guys, that that 
the valuation stretches away from them too. Yeah, no doubt. Eventually, valuation stretching too far is going to be a real problem. Or you become a Momo guy and then you ride it and you're a hero right at the top and then you get your ass handed to you down 90% when, when momentum comes back to earth, which it does on a regular basis. Hasn't this time around yet. Some Twitter Momo guys get quoted by Bloomberg. The <laughs> ultimate Momo bro. <laughs> Fellas, we've run way over time. Good session, boys. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Have a good one, people. See you next stay, week. Stay safe out there. <laughs>